Psalm 81 this morning, we're picking back up in our Summer in the Psalms series, uh, something that we started all the way back in 2015. Some of you were here with us when we started Psalms, uh, the Summer in the Psalms. And each summer, we just take a collection of Psalms. We're averaging somewhere around 10 per summer, a little bit under that. Had some time off last summer, and so we didn't cover quite as many. But we'll be looking at Psalm 81 this morning. I've titled this God's Side of the Story, and hopefully as we move along, you'll see why we've titled it that particular way. So last year, last fall, we did a study in the book of Proverbs, and I was really impacted by a number of those studies, and the teacher always gets impacted before you get to come and tell you guys what I've learned, and one of the Proverbs in particular that had a real impact on me, and I think in really almost every day, in some form or fashion, this thought has come to mind. It's this one. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Has anybody else had that experience where somebody just seems so right and they seem, you seem like you're ready to sign up, you're ready to sign their petition and you're ready to join their team and then you hear another side to the story and all of a sudden things aren't quite as clear and things are a little bit cloudy and you maybe realize that you've been believing somebody that you shouldn't have believed and it takes a lot of skill to work through that sometimes in relationships I think uh, the philosophers, some older philosophers used to say, beware of the sound of one hand clapping. Now you gotta think about that for a second. Beware of the sound of one hand clapping. Meaning if you're only hearing one side, you're really not hearing the issue at all. I tell my students sometimes, as we get into cultural issues, if you have absolutely no idea why the person is saying the things that they're saying, you're not in a position yet to comment on it. You need to do a little research and come to understand. There's another side to the story. Slow down, listen, account for what you hope is true. You always need to account for that as humans. Or in our modern lingo, watch out for confirmation bias, just finding something that supports your side of the story, adding data points that just support you. Now, as we think about that, I've uh, put that thought on hold just for a moment because we'll come back to that in just a minute. And I'll show you the relevance in just a second. As we've come this far in the Psalms, we're over halfway now. In fact, the midpoint is 75 that we read this morning. We studied that one last summer. As we have come this far in the Psalms, I've been trying pretty regularly to remind us that the Psalms is not just a random collection. It's not like the, there's just this sort of collection of scraps of paper with various Psalms and they got dropped on the ground and then somebody just sort of picked them up and threw them all in a file folder and that's how we got the Psalms. I actually have made the case, and I think this is, this is true and I'm more convinced of this than I was when I first started looking into it, I think the Psalms are in an order and I think it's beautiful and the order itself communicates something. And so with that, within the Psalms, you'll notice that there are three books of the Psalms within the book. So just like the Bible has many books within the book, there are also books within the Psalms. And as we drill down a little bit more into this, what we're seeing is that it basically traces the story of Israel. God's promise to build a people, his covenant with Abraham and to build this people and give them land. And the first couple of books deal with that, of this 
God establishing his king and then his kingdom in book two. And then something goes horribly wrong in book three. And so we're dealing with the exile from the land. And I think this is what's going on here in this book. So the past few Psalms, particularly 79 and 80, they are really Psalms of lament, Psalms of sadness. What has gone wrong? What in the world, Lord? I mean, we're Israel. You promised us this land. You promised us prosperity. You promised us blessing. You promised that the nations are gonna come to us. It's just not working out quite that way. So what's gone wrong? And so we have a number of places in the last couple of Psalms. I'll just remind you of a couple. Psalm 79 and verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. God, why should the nations look at us and say, see, God wasn't even able to fulfill his covenant. He wasn't able to do it. God, what are you doing? You've made all these great promises and they're not being fulfilled. They're longing, they're asking. Psalm 80, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? God, you're not even hearing our prayers. You're not doing anything, Lord. What's the problem? That psalm goes on to say, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God, are you gonna do a work amongst us again? Why is this happening to us? Last one, Psalm 80. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? He's, the imagery is of a vineyard. There's this beautiful vineyard that the Lord has allowed to grow, but then all of a sudden the defenses are gone and neighbors are just walking in and stealing everything. And this is a picture of the state of Israel right now. And so here we are in the middle of this book three, and there's a series of laments. But so far, in most of these at least, with a few exceptions, verses here and there, most of this has been from the people's perspective. And now we're gonna hear God's side of the story. What does God have to say about this? The people, they felt a deep sense of abandonment, loss, hurt, even hopelessness. God, what are you doing about this? And I'm sure some of them were completely confused as to why this was happening. Sometimes in parenting, I think I mentioned this story a little while back, not that long ago. One of my younger brothers, whenever he would get in trouble and he would have some sort of punishment for something that he had done, and he, my mom would always ask him, now why did you get in trouble? And he would always say, because you're mean. Like that was his standard answer. Why did this happen to you? And you know, of course as a parent, you're just trying to get them to connect the dots, like cause and effect. You did this and you get this consequence. Never years younger than me, but I think it has now. But early days, like you're just mean. You're just mean. That's it. And I think there were some people probably amongst the Israelites here, like why has this happened to you? Yahweh's mean. Our God's mean. Like they didn't, some of them, most likely didn't have another explanation. Like, why did this happen? Why is it going this way? Well, I guess God just doesn't care. He just turned his back on us. He doesn't care. And so now, 
what we're gonna see, particularly in the second half of this psalm, is God weighing in and saying, let me actually tell you why you're in the situation that you're in. Let me clear things up for you. Sort of like a Job sort of experience when Job has everything taken away from him in the first couple of chapters of Job. And Job, through the series of conversations with his friends, his counselors that come, he maintains his innocence. And he says, I want to talk to God. I need my day in court. And finally, at the end, you know what he gets? He gets his day in court. First question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I'm like, Job, if you want to try a case here, first you need to pass the bar exam. So, question one, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You've probably had those moments in school where you thought, I think I studied the wrong material. I don't think this is going to help. Job, you're not qualified. And that ends with Job with his covering his mouth and saying, the Lord is God. He never got an answer for why these things had happened the way that they did, but his perspective changed when he saw things from God's point of view. So in Israel, in the Old Testament, this is a clear pattern. We have this, what some have called the cycle of redemption. And you'll notice right in the middle is this point at which the people break and finally say, okay, God, you've got to do something. You have to send a deliverer. So generally, and you can, you can follow this in most stories in the Old Testament, there's a period of faithfulness and then there's a period of falling away primarily around two issues, idolatry and injustice. There's a period of judgment. God brings consequences. And then there's a crying out to God. You can see this very explicitly in the book of Judges, actually, if you read it. You can almost trace these in every story. A period of crying out. God sends a deliverer, oftentimes a judge or a prophet or a king, There's repentance that's associated with this. These kind of mix in together, this crying out repentance. And then there's a period of faithfulness, and then we sort of start the pattern over again. And you'll basically see that working out in our psalm here this morning. All right, so God's side of the story. We're going to hear from the Lord on why Israel is in the situation that she's in. I think there's going to be incredible relevance for us here this morning. So let's look at it. Three big headings as we walk through this. First five verses, at least first five and a half verses, deal with worship, a reminder to God's people about worship, to remember God's goodness and his deliverance of them, and then finally walking in a lifestyle of repentance. So let's see it. Let's read our psalm. We'll read it all the way through and then come back and see these points. Psalm 81, to the choir master according to the Giddeth of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute in Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear language I had not known. And then here's where God's perspective comes into play. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, 
if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange gods among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, not but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. What a beautiful reflection and psalm. Let's talk about this issue of worship. We start out with a call to worship. In the Old Testament, there are very specific times and places and very specific prescriptions for how worship was to take place. You might remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, the young priest who decided to freestyle it and offer their own offering. They offered strange fire, the word says, Numbers chapter 11, before the Lord, and they were struck dead. You weren't just free to worship however you wanted. There were very specific requirements. Now, when we talk about worship in our New Testament context, we often talk about one verse in particular, Romans 12.1, and rightly so. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship in this sense, we could talk about individual and then corporate worship. We'll talk about both of these. Worship in the Romans 12, one sense is a very individual thing. What does it mean to worship God? Well, it means to submit yourself fully to him, to not be transformed by the world, as the next verse says. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him in everything that you do. Now, this is, this is a mind-boggling concept, and I remember I was in college when I first really started to wrestle with this idea, because I think, by default, most of us, if somebody asks you, how was worship today, you're probably thinking of what? The music. You're probably thinking of the music um, at your church, and we, it's, kinda, it's kinda this synonymous thing, so worship equals music, music equals worship. Well, let me just be clear. Music is a part of that, but it's not the whole of that. Anything you do as unto the Lord, as a living sacrifice for him, is your spiritual service of worship. Now that broadens out categories, because you can do all sorts of things as worship unto the Lord. Normal, mundane things, glorious things like drinking a cup of coffee in the morning can be your spiritual service of worship to the Lord. Praise God for that. Eating sushi to the glory of God. Again, praise God for these things. Amen. You can go to work as your spiritual service of worship. You can play sports. You can write papers. Welcome back to school, youngsters. You can take tests. You can do your math homework to the glory of God. It is possible to do your math homework to the glory of God. You can change diapers. You can play in the park with your kids all to the glory of God. And this is individual acts of worship unto the Lord, submitting yourself to him, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It broadens out the category quite a bit from just the time that we come and sing, you know, five songs together. It broadens it out a lot. 
There's also a sense of corporate worship as well. Corporate worship. I use this term a lot, and as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, it'd probably be good just to stop and define what I mean by that, because I use that, and, you know, Pastor David uses that term uh, some, and we, we talk like that, but when a lot of you in the worlds that you live in, when you hear corporate worship, you might be thinking the worship of corporations or something being handed down from corporate, the worship of, you know, Apple or Amazon or IBM or Google or whatever. Maybe those are bad examples, maybe not. I don't know. Those are, those are not, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about corporations. When we say corporate worship, we just mean we're coming together in a corporate way, not individually, but corporately, and we are coming together to worship. This is what we do each and every Sunday morning. We come together, we read the word, we pray, we fellowship, we have preaching of the word, we take the Lord's table on the first Sundays of the month. We remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Messiah, he's the king, he's returning. This is our worship, our corporate worship. You might have noticed, I know many of you have probably noticed this, in your bulletins, we want to try to just say this in a, in a very practical sort of way. You might have noticed as you read through the bulletin, we call it worship in song. We have worship in song, worship in the word, worship in song again. We went back in the, back in the old days, you know, all the way back in like 2019, when we used to pass offering plates. Y'all remember that? What church used to be like? You can tell your kids one day. We used to do that. You pass the offering plate. We called it worship in giving and worship in obedience to the communion elements as we celebrate that. So we're, we're saying this is a corporate worship service and everything that happens here is designed to point us to Christ and to be a spiritual act of worship. So we wanna try to, try to not exclude the music that we sing, but we want to include other elements as well. So that's the New Testament context. Let's go back to the Old Testament here for a moment. So jumping back in our text, it says, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Then he says, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre and the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. These elements, the tambourine, the lyre, the harp, these are somewhat familiar terms, maybe not so much for some of these, but they were to come together and sing to the Lord, to use instruments as part of their worship unto the Lord. There were offerings that were prescribed and that were to be taken at particular times. They were to blow the shofar, which is translated for us as trumpet in verse three. Some of you may have a translation that's a little different from that. It's actually the word shofar, which was like a ram's horn that you would, you would blow. Looks something like this. If anybody's looking for a Christmas present to get for me, I need one of those. I just feel like I need one of those. I don't know exactly what I would do. I would probably alarm our neighbors is what I would do. I just feel like I need one though. So I, would, I went to a, a Messianic uh, Jewish service before. Uh, some of you have been to uh, Messianic Jewish services. They blow the shofar. It's usually to start the service. 
And then he talks about this was a, there were only certain times and places where this was blown. It was a calling together. Uh, David will often say, this is our call to worship. And he'll read a particular uh, psalm or other scripture, calling people to worship. The shofar was used in that way to get people's attention. There's a reference also, verse three, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. So three different things going on here. The new moon, the full moon, and then the feast day. The new moon marked the beginning of the month. And it's when the, the moon is not visible. The beginning of the month. And then the full moon is halfway through the month. So the moon is not visible. It, it uh, waxes until it's fully visible, the, the full moon, and then it wanes until the end of the month. And so our months are loosely based now even on the lunar cycle. And they had constant reminders of the seasons, of God's faithfulness. Hey, look at the moon. It's doing its thing again. Look, God is still faithful. And they would blow the shofar and they would celebrate and they would sing and remember God's work, what he's doing. There were a number of other festivals and feasts, seven in total, and they all were reminding them of God's work in the past. Look at what he's done. Verse five, he made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. Now this is a reference as he talks about the land of Egypt, most likely to the Passover, which was a meal commemorating and celebrating the night that God passed over the Israelites and by way of a substitute, the sacrificial lamb, he would deliver them and he judged the Egyptians and then he brought them out. And then that kicked off what would later be understood as the Feast of Booths, which was a time, it was basically like a big week-long camp out to remember the time of their wilderness days. And there was a certain liturgical calendar. There was a certain rhythm and pattern of these things and how it worked. So we come again to the New Testament, and it's no surprise that the Lord has established a weekly rhythm for his church as well, the Lord's Day, to come together to be reminded of these things. So one is worship. Two, we'll see God's side of the story, remember. And now is when God begins to speak into this situation. There's a change of speaker here in verse five. Right at the end of verse five, I hear a language I had not known. And then we see quotes in verse six marking out that there's a new voice speaking to us now. Verse six, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. You may remember how difficult things were for Israel in their captivity in Egypt. They were being forced to meet unreasonable quotas and weren't given the resources to do it. Some of you may think I'm describing your workplace right now. Unreasonable quotas and you don't have the resources to get the job done. And Pharaoh began to crunch down on the people and made it harder and harder and harder and harder and worse and worse conditions, even going to the extreme of these policies to kill the male children so that the people wouldn't populate an army one day and overthrow the government. God's reminding them, I did this for you. I brought you out of that. I delivered you. So what's God's side of the story? 
You might remember some of the past Psalms are asking the question, God, how could this happen to us? Now God is saying, you need to remember what I've done for you. You need to remember. I did this. I brought you out of Egypt. I relieved your shoulder from the burden. We see God's deliverance and then God's law. He says, in distress, you called and I delivered. Again, likely reference here to the Exodus event. Notice it says that I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, Meribah is an interesting story because we have two references to Meribah. And the biblical writers, I'm sure, understood this quite well. And so what we have is there's, the, it's the bookends of Israel's story. So right at the beginning, we have an incident at Meribah. And then right at the end of Israel's time in the wilderness, we have an incident at Meribah. So it's kind of bookending God's deliverance of the people. They come out and they don't have water. They're very thirsty and they start complaining. Now, we're, when we read this, we think, well, Israel, you should just trust the Lord, right? Anybody ever been really thirsty? Like super really thirsty? You can get unreasonable real fast when you're thirsty. I was telling Kate, I think one of the things, after traveling international a couple of times this summer, one of the things I think Americans do really well is we provide water everywhere. You go into the airport and everybody fills up their bottles and you're just walking around with water. Like, I'm walking around Africa thinking, do you people drink? Like, where do you get water in this land? And there is water. It was actually quite lush where we were. But they don't, they don't have the drinking stations everywhere where we are, like we do. And so the people are thirsty. They're wandering. And they don't have their Nalgene bottle with them. They don't have their cute little filtration system. They don't have the one of the little things that you wear on your back, the camelbacks, thank you. I don't have a camelback. They, they've lost those by now. They're thirsty, and they start to complain. And I have to admit that I would probably be right there with them, and I think many of you would as well. They cry out to God, and God says, I'm gonna give you water. Here's how I'm gonna do it. Moses, take your staff, the one that you lifted up when the Red Sea parted, and then later drown Pharaoh's army. Take your staff, strike the rock, and I'm gonna bring water out of the rock. And this is exactly what he did. Amazing, supernatural. Exodus 17, strike the rock and water shall come out. He called the name of that place Massa and Meribah. There's our name. So later on, and this is many years later, 38 years later, most likely, at the end of the journey, they're just about there. They've wandered and wandered and wandered. They were disobedient to the Lord. They complained, which is why they've been stuck out in the wilderness for so long. And they start to do it again. They start to complain about not enough water. And so God instructs Moses to go to the rock. But this time, he wants him to speak to the rock. And he says, water's gonna come out. You know what Moses does? He hits the rock. He wasn't supposed to hit the rock this time. You're supposed to speak to the rock. And this is the spot at which God told Moses, you're not going into the promised land. After 40 years of wandering around with these people, Moses is forbidden to go in because the text says he doesn't treat the Lord as holy. And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. 
and water came out abundantly, so it worked, and the congregation drank and their livestock. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. And later it says Moses did not treat him as holy. So what do we remember? What's God's side of the story? Well, you need to remember my deliverance. You need to also remember my law, which they violated regularly. Look at verse 8. Moving on. God delivered them. Verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. If you would just listen to me. Anybody ever had that conversation with somebody? If you would just do what I'm asking you to do, your life would be so much better. My life would be better. Your life would be better. The world would just be a happier place if you would just listen. But they won't. They won't. There's nothing worse to me than watching somebody make terrible, self-destructive decisions and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a miserable thing. It really is. Both for the person that's involved and engaged in making those decisions, but also for someone who's trying to help and just feels completely helpless. This is the Lord's perspective. You guys chose this. Why are you being exiled? Well, you have other gods, and you don't trust me. This is exactly the terms of the covenant. Deuteronomy 27, 28. You knew how this was going to go, and you haven't done it. That's why this is going this way. Verse 9, what's the law they're supposed to remember? Well, quite simply, they're not to have any other gods. There shall be no strange god among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign god. There's There's no room. God alone is God. So I was talking to Pastor Paul this last week in Uganda. I was asking him about what people believed around the area And what are some of the challenges that he dealt with in the church? And he starts talking about witchcraft. And many of the people, they will say they believe in Jesus, but then they also practice in some form or fashion witchcraft. And this seems pretty foreign to many of us in our context, but I would argue that the idols of our hearts aren't that far away from what was going on here. This might seem foreign. It's really not. An idol is anything that you're willing to sin to get or you're willing to sin if you lose it, all right? If you're willing to blow through rules, you're willing to do whatever you have to do to get the thing, that to you is an idol. Something more important than God and his word and holiness. So while we may look at Israel and say, how could you build a a golden calf? That doesn't make any sense. I think they could equally look at us and say, why is that phone so important to you? What's happening on there? I don't get it. Any number of things. Different cultures, same problem. Problem of the human heart and idolatry. But they did. They bowed down to these other gods. God is saying to them, if you would just listen. Reminds me so much of what Jesus said O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. If you would just listen, but they didn't. That leads us to this last point of repentance. 
repentance. Verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn heart to follow their own counsels. Why has this happened to Israel? They chose this. God is giving them over to what they've asked for. Repentance. What do I mean by repentance? One of my college professors, I remember this from many, many years ago, he defined repentance as this, a change in attitude that leads to a change in behavior. Simple, easy definition. If you haven't changed, you haven't actually repented. You could confess something is true. Doesn't mean you had a change of heart and change of attitude about that particular thing. Sometimes God will allow you to have the thing that you want and that's part of his tool to get your attention. We all know how that works as parents. Many of you have coached various things over the years. I had a pretty decorated career as a flag football coach a few years ago. Jags didn't call me when there was an opening a couple of years ago, but I'm okay. And sometimes we would have kids, uh, one kid in particular on our team at one point, and he would always bring me these plays. And he would just have these like elaborate plays. All right, so he's going to take the snap. He's going to hand it to this guy. He's going to flip it behind his back. And this guy's going to run this way. And, you know, it's just these crazy plays. And rather than me sitting down with him and explaining that's not going to work, I would just, at practice, I would just say, oh, good, run it. Like, just, just run it. And let's see what happens. Every time it was an absolute catastrophe and disaster. Like, save me some words and you had fun giving it a run. Just try it, try it, go for it. And in a a not comical way, the Lord sometimes gives people over to what they want. This is the Roman story, isn't it? They refuse to acknowledge God. They refuse to worship God. What does God do? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. You know what? If that's what you want, I'll let you have it. That's what God does. It's exactly what he did to Israel. Verse 12, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Israel, you know why this has really happened? You did it. This is what you wanted, and I'm letting you have it. A few final thoughts, just some application implication for us here today. Let me say a few things to those who are faithful here this morning. To those who are following the Lord, you're genuinely seeking to walk in repentance and faith the best you can. You're seeking to obey him. I just want to affirm your obedience and devotion to the Lord. Jesus is worth it. Walking in righteousness is worth it. Join the mission today. Make him known. It's worth it. To those who are faltering, those who are struggling, those who are giving in often and yielding to temptation, One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. You see, we have to assess the person we're talking to when we're trying to help people, right? When you have someone that's just feeble and broken and they're small-souled, you don't just get a verse of scripture and whack them over the head with it. Not helpful. You assess the situation, you encourage the faint-hearted, you help the weak, You admonish the unruly, the one who's just standing up and saying, I know what God says. I really don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. 
That's the guy that gets the strong word. But the one who's just beaten up, just weak, tired, Jesus, his, his yoke is easy and light. He's gentle. If you're here this morning, you're giving it a run, but it feels like life is just eating your lunch. Struggling with trust, depression, anxiety, purity, anger, worry, laziness, whatever it is, keep fighting, get help, get accountability, get some people around you, struggle. It's worth it to walk in obedience to him. To the faithless, to those who are here this morning and they're like, you guys are crazy. (laughs) This whole Christianity thing, what are you even talking about? I'll just ask you a simple question. What would it take to get your attention before the Lord? Paul speaks in Romans 1, a passage I mentioned earlier. He says it's obvious who God is. Just look around you. His creation reveals that he is a good and true and right God. I think you know that. I think all people know that. And that's what Paul says as well. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness. They're suppressing, they're holding it down actively. And maybe they've been doing it so long they kind of forgot that's what they're doing. But that's what's happening. Romans 1 ends and it notes that even believers know what they deserve. I think they know. Recognize your need for Christ today. I think at this church, I sure hope that you'll find a community and a group of people that believe these things are true, welcoming, honest. David Hume was a famous uh, philosopher and deist, a skeptic, Scottish, back in the 1700s. One time he was out very early to go hear the evangelist George Whitfield preach, uh, Whitfield preaching the gospel. And somebody says, that's David Hume. Like, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to see George Whitfield preach. And they said, why would you do that? You don't believe a word he says. He says, no, I don't but he believes it. And the sincerity of Whitfield captured his attention and it was compelling to Hume. I don't know Hume's whole story and where that went from there, but I would hope as you're here at our church at sunrise here this morning, you might not believe this, but I hope you walk out and think they believe it. (laughs) They really do. This group of people, they are sincere in their love for the Lord and belief in his gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to be together here today, and we're thankful that you give us your word. And Lord, as we see, Israel really had no excuse for the situation that they found themselves in. They had asked for this, and sure, there were undoubtedly some faithful among them who had not worshiped idols and who had not fallen into these same types of traps and sin, but there were so many that had, and this is ultimately why things went the way that it went. And so, Lord, we can easily look at their story and think, how could they, but help us to quickly look at our own hearts as well and think, we are the same. We are so similar, Lord. And so, God, I pray for these three groups that are perhaps here this morning, to those who are faithful, I thank you for them. Thank you for their sustaining, your sustaining grace in their lives. To those who are struggling here this morning, encourage them, lift them up. May this time with believers be strengthening for them and maybe for some in here that just don't believe this stuff at all. I pray that you would use your word this morning to show them their need for Jesus Christ. May they seek somebody out and have a conversation and figure out what, who are you and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen.